OTB Sports Rugby. Don't just take it easy, keep the emotion in check. That's not, not what sport is about. It's about emotion. It's about singing your national anthem with pride. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Delighted to say Ben Jacobs of CBS Sports Galazzo is with us. Ben, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, we might start with the situation at Chelsea. Uh, obviously, Todd Bowley has said that Potter is going to be there for the long haul. He's the manager that they want to take through this whole entire experiment. Um, and yet, we all know the truth about football is that sometimes there's a tipping point and perhaps being beaten by the worst team in the Premier League at home uh, in front of your own fans might be the tipping point. Is there any indication that something is imminent at Chelsea? Well, I think in the immediate aftermath of that loss, those close to the club were sticking to their position of backing Graham Potter. But 24 hours, 48 hours now in football is a long time. And as you say, it's a pivotal moment now and a test of the ownership group to see whether they are true to their principles, which are ultimately a long-term vision of which Graham Potter was hired to be a big part. And the reason for the patience in him is because they deem him and did so at the point of hire to be a football fit, personality fit and strategic fit. But there is not making Champions League football and showing progress and there's moving in the other direction. And when Graham Potter first joined, he was five points off Champions League, which was a big gap at that stage of the season. And now Chelsea find themselves in mid-table. They're not scoring goals. So there's mitigating factors here. The injury list that Chelsea have had, the new signings needing time to bed in, the fact that the new signings came in a January window, which ultimately means that they don't get any kind of pre-season or time to bed in. But nonetheless, when a dressing room is not gelled, and this is a big Chelsea dressing room full of different characters, when a fan base are against the manager, the ownership group now in the early part of this week are going to have to sit down and think very seriously because this has gone from criticism and then pressure around results based upon Chelsea expectations. And then when the counter to that was patience is necessary, I think it was very valid because Chelsea are a brand new project. But now, when you look at the results, it's not Chelsea specific. You could make a very real argument that this run of form that they're on would warrant any manager at any Premier League club very possibly losing their job. And I think the stat doing the rounds is that Nathan Jones at Southampton actually had better form than Potter currently over the same period, and he lost his job at Southampton, who obviously beat Chelsea by being bottom of the table. And that is simply not good enough. So now Todd Bowley has got a very, very big decision to make. We mentioned, uh, Ben, earlier on the, the selection from Graham Potter yesterday, the six changes from Dortmund game. He's gone with a little bit of criticism since the game of the weekend for dropping all of those players. Like, Was there a need to change so much? Were Southampton taken for granted a little bit? I think off the back of the Champions League, Graham Potter chopped and changed, and that was partially down to the fixture congestion. And on top of that, I think that Potter himself hasn't been in this situation before, and that's not helping. And this is one of the key things for me. Will the ownership group look at the fact that he himself has made a step up and provide more time as well? 
because Graham Potter's not been in the business end of a tournament like the Champions League and an away fixture and then returning the default position from the outside in before you've been there is to make a ton of changes. And then when you add to that, he's got a massive squad to the point where someone like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang can't even get in it. And I don't think that Potter knows his best starting eleven either or lead to this tinkering, which is reminiscent if we stick with the Chelsea analogy of Claudio Ranieri, who was known as the tinker man. And in Potter's case, the difficulty is in trying to keep everybody happy, giving out opportunities. And then when results are not going away, feeling like a change is necessary. And that's the sort of irony of Dortmund in particular, that Chelsea didn't play badly. And actually, Graham Potter hasn't come under a huge amount of criticism for that match because although they lost and therefore it feeds into the bigger picture of poor form, it was really just a series of missed chances, but they played superbly. They showed progress and potential. So Potter wasn't under any real threat immediately after Dortmund, but Southampton was different because, as you say, he picked a different starting 11. They didn't look incisive. There was no real chemistry. They conceded. The goal woes continued. And when you add all of that up, it's very difficult now because you've got away at Tottenham next. That obviously on paper at the moment, you would have to say is a Tottenham victory if you were just basing it on the odds. And then the following week, they've got to go Leeds and then Dortmund again. So if the ownership group are to make a change, they've really got to either do it right now to give any new manager or interim time ahead of that Dortmund second leg, or they've got to wait and hope that in these games coming up against Tottenham, Leeds and Dortmund, that things turn around. Is your instinct that they won't make a change, that they've backed themselves into a corner a little bit here and they kind of need to dance with the one who brung them all the way to the summer? It wouldn't surprise me if it's a divided board, not in any dramatic sense, but not everybody has to be unified here because these are names that have come in relatively recently at all levels. The board upheaval happened about 100 days in. A new recruitment team was built. And let's not forget that includes Paul Wynn Stanley, the co-sporting director who worked with Graham Potter at Brighton. So the board would be remiss not to be talking to him because his opinion on Potter holds more weight because he simply worked with him for a longer period of time. So my instinct is that serious conversations will happen, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a sacking. It could just as easily be a reiteration to Potter of what the project is and what the expectations are. Ben, but I do think we have to make a clear distinction between Chelsea in bad form, but showing signs of progress and Chelsea in bad form and moving in the other direction. And there's only so long this run can continue before the desire to keep Potter is trumped by the fact that the results just don't allow for that. And that is why I think Graham Potter is on increasingly thin ice. So my instinct is that today specifically is going to be very key because if he doesn't go today and over the weekend, the intimation was a no change narrative, but that can be deemed also to be a dreaded vote of confidence. But if it isn't today, then I would expect the ownership group to give Graham Potter more time sticking to these principles that he's there for the long term. But today, make no mistake, is a very important day and a big test of Chelsea's ownership group. Ben, you mentioned Aubameyang's name there a moment ago. What the hell is going on with the Aubameyang situation at Chelsea? Because that's a third league game in a row where he's not in the squad, he's not in the Champions League squad. Reading um, Graham Potter's comments after the game, he was asked about Aubameyang's absence. He said, I would say keep doing what he's doing. We had Kai Havertz and Raheem Sterling coming on, but when you don't score, 
when you're creating chances, I understand the question. Those three games that he was dropped for, they've only scored once. Does he have a future at the club? I know he wasn't a Potter signing as such, but surely they're going to rely on him at some point to start banging in goals because no one else is doing it. Well, I don't see Aubameyang playing any games for Chelsea simply because over the next few weeks, they're only going to have more players either available or in form. And this is the challenge for Aubameyang. He's way down the pecking order. And let's not forget that others are going to be coming in over the summer as well. Christopher and Kunku will arrive from Leipzig. That's all pre-agreed. And they want another traditional number nine. And ultimately, Aubameyang knows that his time is up, come what may, at Chelsea at the end of the season, which is why there were clubs coming in outside of the transfer window that are into next season, such as the MLS, that were trying for Aubameyang. But he still sees himself as a top European player. And he would have gone back to Barcelona if it was possible. But not only can you only play for two clubs in a given season, so that would be Barcelona and Chelsea, but you can't change your registration three times, which didn't allow Aubameyang to go back to Barcelona, even though he's still within that two-club rule because it was registered for Barcelona for this season, registered for Chelsea. The re-registration to Barcelona would have stopped him going back on a free in January. And I think if that was possible, he'd already be gone. But the challenge for Aubameyang is that when Hakim Ziyech on the last day of the window was sitting in PSG's offices minutes away from the deadline with a loan move secured and the paperwork came in late, when he returned to Chelsea, Graham Potter put him straight in the starting lineup and then straight in the Champions League squad. In stark contrast, Aubameyang wasn't even in the squad after the window ended and was removed from the Champions League squad and since hasn't been involved. So then you look at Southampton when the dust has settled and say, surely if you're going to make all these changes off the back of the Champions League, you can find space at least for Aubameyang to have a cameo against the bottom side in the Premier League with his pedigree of scoring. And yet again, he wasn't involved. And I think this is a clear message that Aubameyang is out the picture. And Graham Potter says there's been no fallout. He's working hard. If you look at any videos or photos of Aubameyang in training, he's smiling, he's laughing. But it's been tough because a year or so ago, he's unveiled at Barcelona and then he joins Chelsea. Thomas Tuchel goes. Clearly, that was a Thomas Tuchel signing. Of course, he had that horrific home burglary. So he arrived at Chelsea with a broken jaw, and now he's being frozen out. So it's been a really tough 12 months. I do empathise and feel sorry for Aubameyang, but Graham Potter can't keep deciding things based upon balancing individuals or egos, especially not with players that he feels will not be there come the beginning of next season. And as a consequence, Potter has to stick to his guns, yeah. stick to consistency, stick to his best starting eleven, which I still think that he doesn't know for various reasons. And that basically does mean that at the moment, Aubameyang's time at Chelsea might contractually be continuing, but in practical terms, it looks like it's done. What about Arsenal? The performance at the weekend, obviously, it's one of those bits where if they win the league at the end of the year, you look back and go, wow, that was one of those key moments where uh, stuff fell into... Um, I don't know. I don't know how you describe it. Is it, is it good fortune? Is it just they, they continued taking shots and so therefore they got what they deserve? But every every one of the teams who's won the league over the last number of seasons has had some of these big games along the way where it looks like they're going to they're going to lose and they turn it around and they retrospectively invest a lot of emotional uh, intensity to that particular moment. Is this one of those? Do you think for Arsenal or uh, Villa? Not very good at the moment. Absolutely annihilated the previous week by Leicester. And yet, within moments of actually beating Arsenal. 
Yeah, I think that you look at Arsenal's mini wobble, if we can call it that, and it's concerning. And this is the Premier League all over because when Manchester City beat Arsenal, it was a momentum swing and everyone thought that that was season defining. But all Arsenal had to do off the back of that, especially with their game in hand, was respond. And not only did they win, but equally as significant to why the win is important is because Manchester City surprisingly dropped points away at Nottingham Forest. And I think that... If you look at how Arsenal conceded against a inconsistent Villa team at the moment, then that across the 90 minutes was not, in terms of standard, a title winning performance. But that's irrelevant because in the last six minutes of the game, but particularly in the third minute of injury time, they scored twice and won the game. And when you do that, you gain more from simply getting the three points and having that jubilation and showing that you've got the character because that's what you need to win the Premier League. And that actually is more significant than perhaps the level of performance and the fact that Villa almost got something out of the game. So, of course, we know that Arsenal rode their luck, but to fight back, it was astonishing. And you, you could tell throughout the course of the game that they were growing in this confidence that if they could get level they could go on and win the game. And that's exactly what happened. And although they had a little bit of fortune because it was an Emmy Martinez own goal, let's take nothing away from how well hit the Jorginho shot was in the first place, which came off the bar and then off the back of Martinez's head. And the fourth goal arguably has no real bearing on much. But when you look at a tight race for the Premier League that can ultimately come down to goal difference, you'll take that fourth goal as well, where Emmy Martinez came up the other end to try and equalise and Martinelli was able to go down the other end and score effectively into an open goal. So it looks like Arsenal, therefore, have got what they needed. But Mikel Arteta will no doubt ahead of the Leicester game on Saturday, be emphasising the fact that Arsenal have to get back to being less open and more disciplined at the back and not give sides the opportunity to score first and get ahead. But now you have this scenario, Manchester City have always been very good at this as well, where Arsenal look to that game all the way through until the end of the season. And they say, if we can come back from behind, if we can show character, if we can overcome adversity, and not just that one game, but this kind of mini wobble that I mentioned before, that's going to be so significant to their confidence. Because if it was Manchester City, you'd say they've been there before. So if they went through a few games where they dropped points by still being top of the league and with the game in hand, it may not be as significant. But because Arsenal have not recently been in this position, and because last season... They got towards the end of the season and then, of course, they lost the North London derby and away at Newcastle and they ended up missing out on Champions League football. This is a game they're going to keep having cited, I think, in dressing rooms, in training, in matches where they say, even if it looks bad for us, we will come back. And it is that spirit and that unity yeah. I think is going to be so significant. And also the other thing is now they've got Leicester, who are a little bit hit and miss. They didn't start the year well. Then they had a good run, but Manchester United dismantled them in the second half. Could have been different, of course, had De Gea not made those couple of stunning saves. And then after that, they've got home to Everton, home to Bournemouth. So on paper, Arsenal feel they can win their next three games. And then suddenly you're heading into the middle of March you know that Manchester City have got Champions League and as a result, that is going to require rotation and Arsenal have still got that game in hand. So it's all looking very positive for Arsenal at the moment. 
Uh, briefly, Ben, what's what's going to happen with this Manchester United ownership? Uh, do you feel we've got the, the bids confirmed by uh, the Qatari banker Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani on Friday, and uh, Jim Ratcliffe following suit as well, just before the deadline of ten o'clock? Do you have any indication as to what way this is going to go? Going to go? Of course, they have the the, um, the the finances to look over now before they actually take this any further. But um, do you have a feeling which way it's going to be headed? And that is the key point, really, that this is the early stage of initial offers without significant due diligence being done. And as a consequence, there may well be a few rounds of bidding. So what we know is Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Sheikh Yassim have gone public. There's a few companies, particularly Elliott, who were the owners of Milan, who have said that they will help finance in some way, either to keep the Glazers at the club, which would not be popular. That surely can't happen, Ben. Well, you would think not, but the Glazers are also not going to sell just because there's a fan desire for them to exit. So we cannot rule out the possibility of the Glazers finding a way to stay with some form of minority investment. But the two outright bids we know about are both pretty bullish. So Sir Jim Ratcliffe is saying he wants to buy out the Glazers' stake, which is not 100% of the club, but it's 100% outright buyout of the Glazers, meaning they'd be gone. Whereas Sheikh Yassim, interestingly, said that he wanted 100% of the club, period. And the Qatari bid is confident. Both bids are talking about redeveloping Old Trafford and Manchester United's training facility. One key difference is that even though Radcliffe says that he'll use debt, it won't be on Manchester United's books. Sheikh Yassim says that his bid is going to be 100% debt-free. So if we were talking in transfer terms, which is very superficial, and we shouldn't look at this quite like a transfer, but we would say the Qataris are sounding like they're confident and front-runners. But these offers are, as I understand it, at the top end, around twice the price of the Chelsea sale, which is still under $5 And as a consequence, if the Glazers want six billion, seven billion, there's still a very big gap for in negotiations the parties to come to or the Glazer family need to decide that they're prepared to come down on the price. Otherwise, this will all lead to a lot of talks and confidence. But if a price isn't agreed, then ultimately the Glazers will still want to stay at the football club. So that's what's going to be very interesting. Are the Glazers playing gamesmanship and is this price competitive? And industry insiders say yes, that if it was in the mid four billions or above, that is still a very good price, in which case the Glazers may go. Or are the Glazers genuine in wanting this six, seven, eight billion, in which case there's a big gap in these initial offers. But of course, there is still due diligence to come. So we're going to have to wait and see now how this one progresses. I should also point out that there is going to be other interests that's more private or secretive. So I don't see this as only being a two horse race. I think there'll be something credible from North America. And although we know that the Saudis have not made an outright bid, don't still be surprised if they're involved in some capacity as well, joining another group or secretly offering some kind of private funding that we don't yet know about. So I think the pool of interest will be slightly bigger than we know about at this point. But just one final thing to say, even though it's a side point, the PR firm who are backing Qatar's bid and briefing around it, they were the ones that sent out the statement to media, were also contracted to the Premier League. And prior to working with Sheikh Yassim's bid, they gave up their contract with the Premier League due to a conflict of interests. Now, if you're the Qatari bid and you're this PR firm and you feel like it's going to end in the next few weeks because you're not going to be put through or you don't stand a realistic chance of winning, 
you don't take that gig in the first place over a long-standing relationship with the Premier League. So that, again, is a very small, minor side point of indication that the Qataris are serious and confident, and that is shown in the fact that one of the PR firms representing them are quite prepared to take on this gig and surrender something with the Premier League because it's a conflict of interest. And you don't do that if the story is just going to come and go, which, well, again, is perhaps more uh, indication that the Qataris are serious. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that they were well remunerated for for that, uh, giving up that contract. The, the buyout mm. must have been significant. Uh, ben, one last thing on this uh, uh, time frame that's realistic for this all to happen um, it, it either happens quickly or it doesn't happen at all. It's kind of the sense at the moment. I think that if it was to go according to its earliest time scale, there could either be a series of suitors shortlisted, the due diligence obviously happens, and then you get to a preferred bidder period of exclusivity and then an acquisition. And at the very, very earliest, that could be Easter. But once you get a credible suitor, and if one suitor leaps out, the process can obviously be changed to give them preference. And if a singular suitor leaps out and gets into that period of exclusivity, the power dynamic changes a bit because then that group knows they're in the lead. So they can do things a bit more on their terms, which means that it will take as long as it takes, to be perfectly honest with you. That's the message that I'm getting from all groups. If they get through, then they realize they stand a chance or they're in an exclusive period and they know that they're the front runner. At that point, they're not going to say to the Glazers, sure, we'll meet your deadlines. They'll say, sure, we'll do our due diligence and we'll take as long as it takes. But the latest, if anything happens, is still probably going to be towards the end of or at the end of the season, simply because all parties are aware the best transitional time in order to change owners or bring in a minority investor is naturally at the end of the season and or when the transfer window opens because you've got that time and there's clarity in the market. Yeah. And if it is a full new owner, they can go out and spend. Whereas if the Glazers are still there when the transfer window opens, there's going to be a question mark as to whether Eric Ten Hag, Champions League or not, can immediately start spending. And that's why I think that this will be wrapped up one way or the other or ended if nothing happens by the end of the season. But to say Easter for sure might be a bit premature because ultimately the groups trying to buy are not necessarily going to rush to the Glazers' timescale as the process advances, whereas now they're having to meet deadlines that are ultimately designed to get something done if something happens as quick as possible. Ben, good stuff. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. All the best. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.